Twitter scams, Patch Tuesday, and criminals hacking criminals. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do today, sir? Very well, Doug. We didn't have the lunar eclipse here in England, but I did get a brief glimpse of the full, full moon through a tiny gap in the clouds that emerged as the only hole in the whole cloud layer the moment I went outside to have a look. But we didn't have that orangey moon like you guys did in Massachusetts. Let us begin the show with uh, This Week in Tech History. This goes way back. This week on November 8th, 1895, German physics professor Wilhelm Röntgen stumbled upon a yet undiscovered form of radiation, which prompted him to refer to said radiation simply as X, as in X-ray. How about that? Accidental discovery of X-rays. Quite amazing. I remember my mum telling me in the 50s, it must have been the same in the States, Apparently in shoe shops, people would take their kids in (laughs) and you'd you'd stand in this machine, put on the shoes, and instead of just saying, walk around, are they tight, do they pinch, you stood in an x-ray machine, which just basically bathed you in x-ray radiation and took a a live photo and said, oh yeah, they're the right size. Yeah, simpler times, a little dangerous, but... uh... A little (laughs) dangerous. Can you imagine the people who worked in the shoe shops, they must have been bathing in x-rays all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, well, we're a little safer today. And uh, on the subject of safety, the first Tuesday of the month is Microsoft's Patch Tuesday. So what did we learn this Patch Tuesday here in November? Well, the super exciting thing, Doug, is that technically Patch Tuesday fixed not one, not two, not three, but four zero days. But actually, the patches you could get for Microsoft products on Tuesday fixed six zero days. Remember wow. those exchanged zero days that were notoriously not patched last patch Tuesday? The, mm-hmm. uh, what was it, CV-2022-41040 and 41082, what became known as proxy not shell? Well, those did get fixed, but in essentially a separate, a, a sideline to patch Tuesday, the exchange November 2022 SU software update that just says the November 2022 exchange software updates contain fixes for the zero-day volumes reported publicly on the 29th of September 2022. All you have to do is upgrade exchange. Gee, thanks, Microsoft. I think we knew that that's what we were going to have to do when the patches finally came out. So they are out, and they are two zero-days fixed, but they're not new ones, and they're not technically in the patch Tuesday part. There, there are four other zero days affixed. And if you believe in prioritizing patches, then obviously those are the ones you want to deal with first, because somebody already knows how to do bad things with them. And those range from security bypass, two elevations of privilege, and one remote code execution. But there are more than 60 patches in total. And if you look at the overall list of products and Windows components affected, there's an enormous list, as usual, takes in every Windows component slash product you've heard of, and many you probably haven't. So, as always, don't delay. Do it today, Douglas. Very good. Um, (laughs) Let us now talk about quite a delay. Uh, You have a very interesting story about the Silk Road drug market and a reminder that criminal stealing from criminals is still a crime, even if it's uh, 
some 10 years later that you actually get caught for it. Yes, even people who are quite new to cybersecurity or to going online will probably have heard of Silk Road, perhaps the first well-known, big-time, widespread, widely used dark web marketplace where basically anything goes. So that all went up in flames in 2013 because the founder, originally known only as Dread Pirate Roberts, but ultimately revealed to be Ross Ulbricht, his poor operational security was enough to tie the activities to him. Not only was his operational security not very good, it seems that in late 2012, they had, can you believe it, Doug? A cryptocurrency payment processing blunder (gasps) of the type that we have seen repeated many times since that went around not quite doing proper, what you might call double entry accounting, where for each debit there's a corresponding credit and vice versa. And this attacker discovered that if you put in some money into your account and then very quickly paid it out to other accounts, that you could actually pay out five times or even more the same bitcoins, if you like, before the system realised that the first debit had gone through, loosely speaking. So you could basically put in some money and then just withdraw it over and over and over again and get a bigger stash. And then you could go back into what you might call a cryptocurrency milking loop. And he, it's estimated, the the investigators weren't sure. He started off with between 200 and 2,000 bitcoins of his own, whether he'd bought them or mined them, we don't know. And he very, very quickly turned them into, wait for it, Doug, 50,000 bitcoins. Wow. More than 50,000 bitcoins, just like that. And then obviously figuring someone's going to notice he cut and run while he was ahead with 50,000 bitcoins, each worth an amazing $12, up from fractions of a cent just a few years before. So he made off with 600,000 US dollars, just like that, Doug. Nine years later, (laughs) (laughs) almost exactly nine years later, When he was busted and his home was raided under a warrant, the cops went searching and found a pile of blankets in his closet under which was hidden a popcorn tin, strange place to keep your popcorn, inside which was a a sort of computerised cold wallet, inside which were a large proportion of said bitcoins. At the time he was busted, bitcoins were something north of... 65,535, or 2 to the power of $16 minus $1 each. They'd gone up well over a thousandfold in the interim. So at the time, it was the biggest crypto coin bust ever. Nine years later, having apparently been unable to dispose of his ill-gotten gains, may be afraid that even if he tried to shove them in a tumbler, all fingers would point back to him. So he's had all this $3 billion worth of bitcoins that have been sitting in a popcorn tin for nine years. My goodness. Uh, So having sat on this scary treasure for all those years, wondering if he was going to get caught, now he's left wondering how long will he go to prison for and the maximum sentence for the charge that he faces, 20 years, Doug. Uh, Another interesting story going on right now. If you've been on Twitter lately, you will know that there's a lot of activity. I'll just say it diplomatically. Including well, the times, at one... <laughs> they are a change. <laughs> Including at one point the uh, idea of charging $20 for a verified blue check, um, which, of course, almost immediately prompted some scams. It's just a reminder, Doug, that whenever there's something that has attracted a lot of interest, 
the crooks will surely follow. And the premise of this was, hey, why not get in early? If you've already got one, guess what? You won't have to pay the $19.99 a month. If you pre-register, we'll let you keep it. We know that that wasn't Elon Musk's idea as he stated it, but it's the kind of thing that many businesses do, don't they? Lots of companies will give you some kind of benefit if you stay with the service. So it's not entirely unbelievable. As you say, what did you give it? B minus? I'd give the uh, the initial email a B minus. If you could per- perhaps be tricked if you read it quickly, but there's some there's some grammar issues. Yeah. There's some some just stuff doesn't feel right. And then once you click through, I'd give the landing page a C minus. That gets even dicier. So that's somewhere between five and six out of ten. Yeah, let's say that. Yeah. And we do have some advice uh, so that even if it is an A-plus scam, it won't matter because you will be able to thwart it anyway, starting with my personal favorite, use a password manager. A password manager solves a lot of problems when it comes to scams. It does. A password manager doesn't have any human-like intelligence that can be misled by the fact that the pretty picture's right, or the logo's perfect, or the web form is in exactly the right position on the screen with exactly the same font so you recognize it. All it knows is never heard of the site before. And of course, uh, turn on 2FA if you can. Always add a second factor of authentication if possible. Of course, that doesn't necessarily protect you from yourself. So if you go to a fake site and you've decided, hey, it's pixel perfect, it must be the real deal, and you are determined to log in, and you've already put in your username and your password, and then it asks you to go through the 2FA process, you're very likely to do that. However, it gives you that little bit of time to do the stop, think, connect, and go, hang on, what am I doing here? So, in a way, the little bit of delay that it introduces can actually be not only very little hassle, but also a way of actually improving your cybersecurity workflow by introducing just enough of a speed bump that you're inclined to take cybersecurity that little bit more seriously. So I don't see what the downside is really. And of course, another strategy that's uh, tough for a lot of people to uh, abide by, but is very uh, effective, is to avoid login links and action buttons in email. So if you get an email, don't just click the button, go to the site itself, and uh, you'll be able to tell pretty quickly whether that email was legit or not. Basically, if you can't totally trust the initial correspondence, then you can't rely on any details in it, whether that's the link you're going to click, the phone number you're going to call, the email address you're going to contact them on, the Instagram account you're going to send DMs to, whatever it is, Don't use what's in the email, find your own way there, and you will short-circuit a lot of scams of this sort. And finally, uh, last but not least, (laughs) this uh, should be common sense, but it's not. Uh, Never ask the sender of an uncertain message if they're legitimate. Don't reply and say, hey, are you you really Twitter? Yes, (laughs) you're quite right. Because my previous advice, don't rely on on the information in the email, like don't phone their phone number. But some people are tempted, they go, well, I'll call the phone number and see if it really is. Because obviously, if the crooks answer, they're going to give their real names. As we always say, if in doubt, don't give it out. Um, and this is, a, this is a good cautionary tale of uh, uh, this next story. When security scans, which are uh, of legitimate security tools, when they reveal more than they should, what happens then? 
This is a well-known researcher by the name of uh, Fabian Braunlein uh, in Germany. We've featured him a couple of times before. He's back with a detailed report entitled URLscan.io's Saw Spot Chatty Security Tools Leaking Private Data. And in this case, it's URLscan.io, a website that you can use for free or as a paid service where you can submit a URL or a domain name or an IP number or whatever it is, and you can look up what does the community know about this. And it will reveal the full URL that the person asked about. And this is not just things that people copy and paste of their own choice. Sometimes their email, for example, may be going through a third-party filtering tool that itself extracts URLs, calls home to urlscan.io, does the search, gets the result, and uses that to decide whether to junk, spam block, or pass through the message. And that means that sometimes if the URL included secret or semi-secret data, personally identifiable information, then other people who just happen to search for the right domain name within a short period afterwards will see all the URLs that were searched for, including things that may be in the URL, you know, like blah, 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 question mark, username equals Doug, ampersand, password, reset, code, equals, long string of hexadecimal characters, and so on. And he came up with a fascinating list of the kind of URLs, particularly ones that may appear in emails and may routinely get sent off to a third party for filtering in some way and then get indexed for searching. The kind of emails that he figured were definitely exploitable included, but were not limited to account creation links, Amazon gift delivery links, API keys, DocuSign signing requests, Dropbox file transfers, package tracking, password resets, PayPal invoices, Google Drive document sharing, SharePoint invites, and newsletter unsubscribe links. Not pointing fingers there at SharePoint, Google Drive, PayPal, etc. Those were just examples of URLs that he came across which were potentially exploitable in this way. And we've got some uh, advice at the end of that article. Boils down to reading Braunlein's report, read the uh, urlscan.io's blog post, do a code review of your own if you have code that does online security lookups, learn what privacy features exist for online submissions, and uh, importantly, learn how to report rogue data to an online service if you see it. There are three, I noticed three uh, sort of limericks, very creative uh, mini poems at the end of this article. No, they're uh, not limericks. Limericks have a very, very formal five oh, structure. Oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. That's true. With both meter and rhyme. Yeah, yeah, very yeah, structured, you, Doug. I'm so sorry. Yep, Ooh, very, yeah, yeah. Watch so yourself. true. This is just doggerel, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, but once again, if in doubt, don't give it out. And if you're collecting data, if it shouldn't be in, Stick it straight in the bin. <laughs> and if you're writing code that calls public APIs that could reveal customer data, never make your users cry by how you call the API. Yeah, that's a new one for me, and I like that one very much. And uh, last but certainly not least on our list here, uh, we've been talking week after week about this open SSL security bug. The big question now is how, do you, how can you tell what needs fixing? Indeed, Doug. How do we know what version of OpenSSL we've got? And obviously on Linux, you just open a command prompt, OpenSSL space version, and it tells you the version you've got. But OpenSSL is a programming library. There's no rule that says that software can't have its own version. 
your distro might use OpenSSL 3.0, and yet there's an app that says, oh no, we haven't upgraded to the new version. We prefer OpenSSL 1.1.1 because that's still supported. And in case you don't have it, we're bringing our own version. And so unfortunately, just like in that infamous Log4Shell case, you had to go looking for the 3, 12, 154, who knows how many places on your network where you might have an outdated Log4J program, same for OpenSSL. In theory, XDR or EDR tools might be able to tell you, but some won't support this and many will discourage it actually running the program to find out what version it is because after all, then if it's the buggy or the wrong one and you actually have to run the program to get it to report its own version, that feels like putting the cart before the horse, doesn't it? So we published an article that in special cases where you actually want to load the DLL or the shared library and you actually want to call its own tell-me-thy-version software code, in other words, you, you trust the program enough that you'll load it into memory, execute it, and run some component of it, we show you how to do that so you can make absolutely certain that any outlying OpenSSLs that you have on your network are up to date. Although this was downgraded from critical to high, it is still a bug that you need to and want to fix. On the subject of the severity of this bug, we got an interesting question from uh, Naked Security reader Svet, who writes in part, how is it that a bug that is enormously complex for exploitation and can only be used for denial of service attacks continues being classified as high? <sighs> yes, I think he said something about, oh, Hasn't the OpenSL team heard of CVSS, which is a US government standard, if you like, for encoding the risk and complexity level of bugs in a way that can be automatically filtered by scripts? So it's got like a low CVSS score, which is a common vulnerability scoring system. So why are people getting excited about it? Why should it be high? And so my answer was, why shouldn't it be high? It's a bug in a cryptographic engine, it could crash a program so that's trying to get an update, so it'll crash over and over and over again, which is a little bit more than just a denial of service. It's actually like preventing you from doing your security properly. There is an element of security bypass. And I think the other part of that, of the answer is when it comes to vulnerabilities being turned into exploits, never say never. When you have something like a stack buffer overflow, where you can manipulate other variables on the stack, possibly including memory addresses, there is always going to be the chance that somebody might figure out a workable exploit. And the problem, Doug, is once they've figured it out, it doesn't matter how complicated it was to figure out. Once you know how to exploit it, anybody can do it because you can sell them the code to do so. So I think, you know what I'm going to say, I, not that I feel strongly about it. But <laughs> I, it's once again one of those damned if they do, damned if they don't things. Very good. Thank you very much, uh, Svet, for uh, writing that comment and sending it in. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amath, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.